Listener Production. Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. This is how the show starts. I ask my guests who they are. So pretty simple one to start. Who are you? Uh, my name is Melanie Bracewell, and I, I've been sober for a week. I'm sure someone's done that already. Uh, I, I'm a comedian. I do a show called The Cheap Seats on Channel 10. It's very fun. Hello, Melanie Bracewell. Uh, you Hello. were just telling me off air before we were about to start that you may be suffering from concussion. Well, I just had it in, like we're in finals for netball mm-hmm. and so our trainings are getting a little bit more intense. And so um, I just stacked it last night, got fully ran into and fell and did the whole, like my whole back of my head hit the concrete. And so I've been feeling a little dizzy and I Googled concussion and potentially, mm. but you know, I feel fine. I drove here, so I hope I'm fine. Well, have you slept in between? Uh, yes. Yes. Well, that, that's, I slept that, last night yeah. and I didn't have a brain bleed. Well, I was going to say, so that's, that's essentially when you took your life in your own hands, when you went to <laughs> yeah. sleep by yourself. No, I was Googling it. it was, <laughs> nothing helps you sleep more than Googling, will I die if I close my eyes right now? Uh, well, good news, you're here. Um, and mm-hmm. so, and look, you know, even better news, I guess, for the podcast, if it goes well, is if you do die in the next couple of days, this is going to be a very hot episode. That's going to be huge. You're going to get amazing. Like, I don't know who your sponsor is, but Squarespace or something are going to be loving it. I mean, I'd imagine we'd have to bring on some specific death-themed sponsor yes, for the occasion. Exactly. You make it an event, right? Life insurance. Or, like, I mean, <laughs> is there any brands that you're particularly fond of that we could, like, I mean, this, these were the brands that she mentioned in the final podcast. We'd love to get on board. I would say a product that I tend to endorse a lot is the Jazz Apple, the most superior apple out of all of the apples. That's probably my most frequent endorsement and just in my day-to-day life. They've never paid me, but I just wanted to preach the best apple to the public. So hang on. So the Jazz Apple, and this is not just young people's lingo, right? Like this is not like Jazz Cigarette or something. This is like you're not not saying something that I as an old man on this podcast later, everyone's going to be like, she wasn't talking about actual apples, man. Like when she was saying Jazz Apple. Not the devil's lettuce. This is the Jazz Apple is a legitimate apple and it's the yummiest, the freshest and the tank. I don't know. I, I don't know why I'm now trying to go into an ad read for it. I've just sort of um, I've had arguments with friends recently about the uh, most superior apple and oh, no. jazz always comes You know what? Top. Like I, I'm interested in this because I've just launched myself back into the world of apples. and I thought you were going to say, I've just launched my apple, the Will Apple, oh, and Will, it's amazing. Will Appleton. That's fine. I could do yeah. that. I could make that work. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> no, I had, hadn't eaten apples in, I'm going to say, and this will sound really weird, but like I'm not a huge fruit person like vegetables more than fruit uh mm-hmm. um but i've decided that I, like i was watching nate bargatze do you know mate nate bargatze i do brilliant I do. comedian He's so, funny. so funny and he was talking about which i guess like in the retelling it doesn't like it'll sound more politically incorrect this joke than than, than perhaps what it is but he was talking about how people say that like fruit has sugar in it like you know and you know you have to watch out for the sugar and he said yeah but you've never really seen anybody's fat fruit friend you know what I mean like that's Greg he (laughs) ate too much pineapple and I was like I actually want to get off sugar like off like snacky sugars I was like you know what 
Fruit. I was reminded. I think Live I, a little. I got the wrong message, which was, oh, yeah, there's sugar in fruit too. You could just maybe do that. But, yes, I've got back into apples. And so, like, an apple recommendation, like, so mm. why is the jazz apple superior? I would say something that's the most important for an apple is consistency. Mm-hmm. And so you sometimes you could have a, an apple and yeah. then sometimes it's good and you don't know what you're getting yourself into. Mm-hmm. And it's a big commitment. You just take one bite of an apple, you, you know, yeah. if it's not good, you've got a whole afternoon that's gone. <laughs> uh, an apple, it's like I think a jazz apple, I've left it in the fridge for a long time uh-huh. and I've come back to it. And even a bad jazz apple is better than a bad another apple is my that's my logic you know what that's actually pretty good i mean you're like is this is he going to keep talking about apples but i know i, I, I was like this is just going to be an aside no, and it's because i'm so the apple pod. i'm so fascinated because i think consistency is one of the things that works against fruit in general right yes like it's like yeah i'm like you ever had a good pair like if you've had a good pair it's like one of the most amazing things you've ever in life but like you're more likely to win the lottery twice than get two good pairs in your entire lifetime. If you've had your good pair, give up on trying to find another one. You've already had yours. Yes. And I came from a, a big family. So, you know, you'd always buy a lot of fruit for the family <laughs> and you never get through it. And my mum would be sort of, there'd be like a almost a, like a science experiment in the fruit bowl. And she'd be so mad that we wouldn't touch it. And it just, there's just something about that visualization that it did put me off fruit as well for a bit, just because you just you know, a tangy mandarin or something, and then you're off it for a month. Okay, so look, I'm going to get off fruit. I, it's, okay, I've, got, right, I've gone yeah, in way we'll too hard on fruit at the start yeah. of this podcast, but I'm not going to mm-hmm. go back too far because I want to get to netball. So yeah. um, how old are you now, if you don't mind me asking? Um, 21. Yeah. No, I'm 20. I'm just turned 28. Yeah. Okay. So like getting towards the end of the twenties, you're a professional <laughs> stand-up comedian touring all over the world. You're like a TV star now. Like you've got all these commitments and you're still, are you worried? Like, I mean, you know, you're going into these obviously violent netball trainings where you might be, you know, getting CTE. You won't be able to remember like where you are, what's going on. Has there been any part of you that's thought this is too dangerous for me to be doing like as a... When it comes to dangerous mm. sports, I don't think netball springs to mind for most people, even though it is... It's dangerous. It's called a non-contact sport, but it is a contact yes. sport. A non-contact sport is tennis. Mm-hmm. Like netball yeah. is still a contact sport. There's still people running into each other. Um, and I've gotten more injuries from netball than I have from basketball, which seems odd. Um, but I don't know. That's never occurred to me. I think... I don't know. I am usually... I, I'm not very fearful of that kind of stuff just because I've always grown up with sport and I haven't probably had a bad enough injury to warrant like wanting to quit or even <laughs> consider quitting because I'm so competitive and sport is one of those avenues uh-huh. that I can let that out. I am a little nervous being on TV and then playing netball because my version of myself on a netball court, I don't want to, I'm, I'm not proud of. So <laughs> I don't want people to be like, I played netball against Melanie Bracewell from the cheap seats and she was an a-hole. Like in this, in in the competition of a game, people are never their, their best self, and that's me included. Okay, so is it a sort of white line fever, as they would say? Like, is it a, like once you step on the court, you become a different personality? 
Yeah, I mean, I try, I try to keep bubbly mm. and fun, and there's no point of playing if you're not having fun. But I, <laughs> I've got, to, I run a constant commentary, yeah. and I think that's what maybe makes me come across really badly because I'm, I'm almost just commentating in my own head, but I forget that there are people around me. So I've got a caution from the ref because. You know, like you get annoyed because you do a contact. You're like, oh, damn it. And then they go, hey, that's enough. Like, don't be. Pro-. I'm like, no, I'm yeah. I'm talking to me. They're like, no, you're standing. You're not allowed to talk. And I'm like, but I, sorry, you didn't understand. I was actually talking to me. I wasn't even talking to you. And I just get stuck in a loop forever. Yeah. Uh, so sport. Like, and the connection to sport. So that's why I'm interested, I guess. I love sport, but there was a point early on in my, like, I think I was 21 or 22 when I first started doing comedy. I broke my leg playing football and I was like, all right, I've got to choose between these things. But you've clearly been able to combine both of them and still have this. What does it, what does it bring to your life that the rest of your life, your work life, the, your, that, that, you know, what role does it fill in that mix, I guess, is what I'm asking. Yeah, I mean, I guess the pressure's off because I'm not, it's not like I'm playing for the Diamonds. Yeah. Like I'm just playing in the Southern Football Netball League. Uh, and I honestly, I think moving to Melbourne from New Zealand, the easiest way to make like at least like eight friends is to join a sports team. And that was genuinely my logic coming in. And I love netball and I played netball in, in New Zealand, so I didn't want that part of my life to be over. But I didn't want to join like a sort of rotating social team because – you just kind of make a lot of acquaintances that way. But if you join a club, like we've got a big club and you end up becoming friends with everyone in the club and people come back the next year and you can actually, I don't know, infiltrate yourself into a friend group um, through the love of sport. So that's that was my that was my logic. So where did it all start then, this like sport in your life? Like can, is there a time in your life you remember that sport wasn't there or is it were like since you can remember, you can remember sport? Yeah, it's an odd one because I come from a sporting family. The Bracewells are, are cricket sort of legends, but my dad didn't grow up with his brothers. And so, uh, you know, they're all, all his brothers are cricketing legends and my dad is in IT. Mm. Um, but that sort of love of sports still feels like it, it's like runs in our genes, you know, just because he had a different upbringing doesn't mean like he doesn't have that same passion for sports. So he loves cricket. He just didn't play it at a professional level. Um and so there's that, but then also I'm tall, like I'm six foot two. So like you walk around and, you know, at school, they're like, all right, you're in the basketball team. You're in the netball team. Like you almost get scouted being a giant woman. Uh, <laughs> so that was part of it as well. Yeah, I understand that. So like being tall at school in sport is a bonus. Mm. But I was tall at school early on and uh, then never grew afterwards. But I, it, I didn't want to stand out. That's part of mm. being tall, right? So in the sporting arena, you can be someone who fits in because of the fact that you're tall. Whereas in yeah. regular classroom and regular life, you stand out because you are tall. How did you feel? I mean, I imagine you were taller than like, you know, most of yes. the girls that I you were at school off, with. I hit six foot when I was in high school, pretty like year 11 almost, I think. So I've been, I, I kind of peaked in year 11 as well. Um yeah, I was listening to a podcast actually with the um, the guy who plays Greg from Succession, and he was talking about how his direction from the like from the director was um, to try and not be seen. And he's six foot eight, <laughs> and so it's like when you rewatch his scenes, he's sort of like almost like hiding behind a curtain, and and you know like. And I was like, oh, I relate to that because you, it, it is it is awkward if you're at like I was kind of shy in school, which you might not believe, and I was also 
tall, so there was nowhere to hide really. And um, so that was that was kind of a weird thing you had to grapple with at school is like just being always noticed and not always wanting to be. And that's interesting then when you – so wh- where is comedy and entertainment and is this in the balance? Is it just are you the sports girl or are you also the theatre girl and the, you know, like make, putting on a play at they like lunchtime girl? They call me a girl. quadruple yeah. threat. <laughs> uh, no, I was, I was, yeah, the extracurricular girl. Uh-huh. Like any anything that came up, I'd be like, I'll do that. You know, I'll be a librarian. I'll do – like I, I think – now that I look back on it and now that I um, date a guy who's got ADHD, I think that I just maybe was undiagnosed or am undiagnosed because it's just like filling every gap in your life with something. Like it was just I couldn't stay still and I couldn't um, not have something going on. So anytime there was an opportunity to do something, I would I would leap at it. You feel, it feels like though you have a very high functioning version of that. Yes, yes, totally. I'm not saying that I um, struggle no. at the same degree that my boyfriend does. No, one, um, one of them is like, you know, it, like not having the attention and the other one is like, yeah, I don't have the attention, but I'm doing 12 things really well. I'm nailing yes. all of these. <laughs> Thank yeah, you. totally. Best I, librarian I this to, school's ever had. Yeah. <laughs> I was to, but again, that was just that competitive element. And I had a best, no. well, I still, she is still my best friend, but um, at school, we kind of one upped each other, and th- th- I think that's having her as my friend at school was like the best thing that ever happened because we kind of balanced each other out quite well, but also like pushed each other. So she was very academic, and I was academic as well, but maybe didn't apply myself in studying as much. And so having her as a friend like made me want to, in a weird way, like I wanted to beat her at the grades. And so like it was like a positive influence, you know. Um, and so we even had like a competition of like who could get the most badges at intermediate of just like things. So we played, um, we went to, a, we played rugby because then we'd get a badge and that was the worst. <laughs> I hated it so much. But when I got that little badge, I was like, ah, look at that rugby. Okay. That's interesting to me. So competition and like seems to be. Yeah, at least part of your personality, that competitive spirit, whether it's on a sporting field or whether it's, you know, even with your friend, like in a friendly competition Mm. way, but like still competition. Is that still intrinsically part of your personality or is that just something that it comes out more in, you know, different places? Yeah, it's waned a bit and it's sort of um, competitive in a different way, I guess. Like a lot of the times, like, competitive instinct is not necessarily to like be better than someone else, but to be better than I was. Uh So like, it's, it's trying to like, if I, if we win a game of netball and I play terribly, I'm not going to feel like amazing about that game. I'm going to be like, Oh, I did this wrong or I need to work on this. So like, it's kind of more become trying to get better at things and, um, yeah, I guess not trying to. I'm not trying to make someone else feel like shit <laughs> anymore. Well, that's good though. That feels like a very nice and natural evolution that not everybody successfully pulls off. Yeah, so. I know. And I say that now, and someone's gonna be like, um, "I actually played with her social on Thursday nights, and she was actually a bitch. <laughs> She's lying." So, uh, when does like comedy, stand-up comedy, come into your life then? Yeah, it's um, 
stand-up comedy came into my life when I was at uni. I was running a blog yeah. on Tumblr called Maladoodle and um, I was like 17 and got like 100,000 followers on Tumblr and that was just like being in the humour blogger yeah. community. And what were you so blogging about? Like, yeah, what are you... It was essentially like, I don't know if you remember Twitter like 10 years ago, mm. how everyone would just be trying to write a joke like and just making it really succinct. That's what Tumblr was just like before that. And so, um, yeah, you just kind of, I guess I joined Tumblr thinking it was just like photos of flowers and stuff. And then I found that there was a whole community of people that wanted to be funny on there. And um, that was probably my first inspiration. And then there was a competition when I was 19 called the Seven Days Comedy Apprentice, uh, which was a TV show in New mm. Zealand, sort of like Mock the Week in the UK or Have You Been Paying Attention. And... I was a huge fan of the show and I thought, well, if I just used to do a video of you being funny. So I just kind of said some of the things that I'd already written out on the internet out loud to a camera and um, got through on that competition. But all the other people that entered the competition were people who were really trying to do stand-up comedy and like and had already done it before and all those things. And it was almost a sense of guilt that I was like, oh, I feel so guilty to take this opportunity away from these people that genuinely want to pursue this as a career. So I need to retroactively pursue this as a career. Oh, uh, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, shivers. It's like if you like, it's like if you just like stumbled into the Olympics and accidentally like 100 right. meters and you're like, okay, well, I better keep doing this. Otherwise. Oh, well, uh, you, yeah. You, know. you at least like you find yourself in the marathon and you're like, yeah. I at least better keep running until the end or someone's yeah. going to be really mad that they gave me yeah, this slot. <laughs> totally. Yeah. yeah. I'm not saying I was at the Olympic level of comedy first time entering it. Um, that was probably a bad metaphor. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, like, I bet. Um, I guess. I, kind of I guess I will be, better be the best there's ever been, ever. <laughs> hey, were you aware yeah. of, like, I mean, so seven days for people who don't know, yes, iconic New Zealand topical news comedy panel program. And were you a fan of, like, you know, TV comedy? Like, were there New Zealand comedic? Like, I mean, because of the age you are and the generation, there's a generation of New Zealand comedy, like incredibly strong and diverse and interesting New Zealand comedy that comes before you and around you, like of, you know, yes. of the age demographic you are. So were you aware of that? Yes, I would say 99% of my personality came from Flight of the yeah. Concords. And because it came out when I was in year seven. So I was like 12 and, you know, just kind of understanding jokes and it was on at like 10 o'clock at night so I had to like watch it like my parents would send me to bed and I'd kind of watch it we had a little like kind of mezzanine and so I would like peek up and like watch it from the mezzanine and it was just I've learned all the songs off by heart and then I would you know I thought I was funny because I would just recite the songs be like did you guys see the episode last night and I would have like learned it overnight and then just do it I'm, like, I'm so impressive by learning someone else's sort of routine almost and it was yeah I I just found it was the funniest thing it still holds up as oh. one of the funniest shows ever I mean and the TV so, show is incredible but you, mm. just yesterday completely coincidentally mm. I was listening to the live in London you know shows they yes. did recently and so good. like 
if people don't know, like, because this is post the TV show and there's like new songs and all sorts of things like in this performance that, you know, people who maybe are just familiar with the TV wouldn't be familiar with, you know, that stuff. And the complex, like the way that their work would develop in its complexity and its interest and like... It's amazing. Yeah. It's like musical comedy. It's it's like some people... Uh, you know, do the music well, but they don't necessarily do the comedy well, or they do the comedy really well, but they're just kind of strumming a guitar. Like musically and comedically, both amazing together is like the best kind of musical comedy. Like they've clocked both of them. Neither is a crutch for the other. They're both just like very strong. So it makes sense to do it. Um, so that's, yeah, I I got all the albums. I used, I have like photos of me and Flight of the Concords merch when I was like 13. Like I'm just, I was obsessed. It was just like my entire life. When I, you, I know you just came back from uh, Montreal just for laughs, the huge mm-hmm. comedy festival over there. And one year, many, many years ago, they used to do this show called Comedy Down Under, which was Australia they and New one. Zealand. Oh, you did? They did yeah. one. I did it. Oh, there you it go. Was just like a, it was like a late night Yeah, um, well, it pub used gig, to be but... on at midnight – like that's yes. when it used to start. I don't know how what time it starts now. I think now. ours was 10.30. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> well, that's good. That's yeah. a real yeah. advance forward. But yeah. one year amongst a whole bunch of others, it, it was the Concords. Uh, and uh, we were filming something for Channel 10, I think, back in Australia. And it was like – so the gig finished at like I reckon 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning. And the only place we could film was this stairwell. And I was just meant to be asking, you know, like generic questions that they would put together for a, like here's some stand-up and tell us about the worst gig you ever did sort of, you know, real standard mm-hmm. comedy fair. And I asked them about the worst gig they ever did and they went on this – everyone was tired and it was just like – it, I honestly believe it probably went for about 45 minutes. This improvised thing about the, like they'd done a gig on another planet and what had gone wrong with this gig on another planet. And it was like, you know, one of those things where you're just like, this is genius. Like watching the yes. two of them just like build on top of each other comedically and lean into the idea and like, and it was. Anyway, it exists somewhere. If someone can find that footage, it's somewhere. Yeah. But the other thing I was going to say was that I was interviewing John Cleese there back in the day before, yeah, when it was okay to, like, you know, (laughs) (laughs) mention John Cleese in polite conversation. And he said one of the best ways he thought to learn how to write comedy was to learn other people's comedy by heart. And then he said, maybe write it down so then you can see the structure. But do you think that by, like, learning those, you know, songs and the, yeah, that's so do you think that you learn a sense of timing from the rote learning of it? Maybe it's, it's hard to know. Cause I, I don't feel like that now. I don't feel like I, I like watching people's live shows, but watching recorded stand up, I always feel like it's just going to get in my brain and I'm going to be like, Oh, I could never write a joke even near that topic on that level. So I'm just going to avoid it. And then if you watch enough comedy, then there becomes too many things that you've seen the best version of. Uh, Oh yes. Um, But I think definitely when you're younger and you're like forming your like comedic personality, watching as much stuff as possible before you become a comedian, I feel like is really helpful. Like you're not thinking about it like, what could I do? How could I do this? You're just enjoying it as a normal person as it was designed to be consumed. Sometimes now I watch stand-up and I feel like I'm analysing it too much and it's 
and and then I then you forget what's funny anymore, and you kind of get too trapped in it. But those like authentic moments of being a kid and watching things like Monty Python and being like, this is mind blowing. This is you know life changing. Okay, so I'm interested in the way that being a professional comedian has changed the way that you engage with comedy. How do you? I mean, how do you work out what is funny i mean it's such a i mean it's such a slippery question at the best of times but you personally if you first are going to engage with a thought or an idea or a perspective and an angle like do you have a way of recognizing oh this might be funny or this might be work like where does that come from where does it start i guess what i'm asking and melanie bracewell is where do you get your comedy ideas from no yeah. <laughs> no but where do, is there a point where you know like, oh, here's a spark. Here's something that I I feel like there's something yes. here. Yes. I feel like I need that spark. Mm. I feel like there's some people who have the writing strategy of I'm going to sit down for an hour and I'm going to write. I'm going to write 15 minutes of comedy. And I just have never been able to do that. I'll sit there and I'll go, well, I need to get a coffee first. And then I'll need to. Oh, and then I need to get my laptop. Oh, I've my I've got to do a Windows update. <laughs> oh, and, you know, like everything, like everything gets in the way. Uh-huh. I find I need at least that initial spark and it will be in my notes app on my phone. So often it just happens when I'm out and about doing something else, not comedy related. And then I've got a bullet point list of things that then I can sit down after I've done my Windows update and work on the first initial nugget of an idea. But I've never really sat down in front of a blank page and gone, okay, funny, funny. How do I be funny? It's like... It, it often comes very sporadically throughout the day. Do you, do then, you have a comedy uh, yeah. philosophy? Like, I, I mean, you know, not, like is there a sort mm. of guideline or a thought behind what you're doing or like any, you know, like rules that you have for yourself? Like is there a broader sense of what it is that you're trying to share or how you're trying to share it? Yeah, I think it's just like a faith that comedy will – happen uh-huh. like I think it's just it's like it's like it's one of those things and I know that's probably like the laziest possibly possible no, philosophy it's like at all simple. time I like but it yeah it's just like sometimes mm. like I've just written a show and I've just filmed the special and after I did that I went I'm never gonna have a funny idea ever again and I'm just gonna release it on the internet and then everyone's gonna see it and then I have then I can't do those things anymore and then I'm gonna have to think of something else and that's really scary and you always think that like your last joke you've written is the last joke you'll ever write, I think. And I just have to keep reminding myself that like, no, you thought that when you were like 19 starting out, when you wrote your first joke that you probably would never do again. Like you thought that you peaked then. So there'll be more to come and you'll be more proud of your next show because it's actually fresh and you still believe in it rather than the joke you've done a (laughs) hundred times and you don't actually really care about anymore. Yeah. Uh, Is your, like how much of your jokes and like the way that you construct your material is an evolution like you know you start with a nugget and try it and try it and try it and it grows and grows and grows versus stuff that arrives you know fully formed 
So, oh man, those are so good, aren't they? When you just something happens and you go, wow, that's you've already put a bow on it before you've even said it out loud. Like it's just those feel like such a gift, but they they're not. They uh, don't happen as often as a lot of it is work, which is so annoying. <laughs> I wish it, I wish it wasn't work. Um, yeah, I love doing trial shows. I love doing a show where the people pay five dollars to be there, and you can kind of just go, all right, go with me on this. This will become something. And then you can kind of, you, you almost, I find you end up finding those tags and those things that actually make it so much better on stage. Sometimes when I'm sitting at my desk, I, I write a lot, but it's so dense and I forget that I've got to have to say this out loud. And so when you when you kind of start with, all right, I need to start here and I need to end here. And here's a couple of punchlines on the way. And leaving a little bit open, like even if you're like trying to explain something, you're like, okay. I'm going to half write my explanation, but I'm going to let the rest flow. Uh, and often you find the perfect way to set it up just by feeling how the crowd's feeling. Like you'll be able to realize that they're bored halfway through your sentence and truncate it as much as possible. So, yeah, it's it's sort of 50-50. Okay. So I'm really interested in um, how you, like, you know, because obviously there's a lot more media opportunities now that Cheap Seats like is a really like, you know, regular show like you know a lot of jokes a lot of your comedic energy and time um do do, do you find that like make, makes it harder to be like creating stand-up material or do you find that it energizes that because you have to kind of be in that comedic mode every week like how do you differentiate melanie bracewell the like you know comedian performer this is who you are from the person who appears on the tv show like i'm just interested yeah. in that it's a mixture of both in the sense that I, I feel like it's a muscle that you're still like if you're doing any form of comedy regularly, then you're cut you're kind of you're flexing that muscle and working it, working it and getting better at it. So I feel like that helps to have a gig every week that I have to we have to do an hour of free like an hour of content essentially. Uh, so that helps, but then there's a time element and you need to like we the cheap seats, people might not realise, but Tim and I don't just like turn up on a Tuesday and then just like, oh, we've got some clips from the internet. Like Tim and I watch all of Sunrise. We watch like it, like all of the all of the news. Basically, we watch all of it because we need to know that we're like looking at something from a, a show perspective. We do have some researchers that help us and submit clips, but um, there's something that you know you might notice as a comedian that not other people would notice. And so it always irritates me when people are like, oh, you're just playing other people's clips. I'm like, but you didn't realize it was funny until we pointed it out. And so yeah, it's like, not, like we you did can't, a lot of the You work. can't rely on there being enough funny clips yeah, during the about week. maybe two of them that yeah. go viral on Twitter and then in a week, ev- maybe. And then everybody has seen them anyway, so they're not that useful yeah. for your show. They often don't make the show. It's your observation like, oh, of something yeah, that is yeah. a theme or repeats or is weird because yeah. it suits the perspective. And like with the cheap seats, if people haven't seen it before, sometimes like the joke is just – in how it relates to, say, your show or some other bit that yes. you're doing, y- you know, the, the bit in itself isn't comedic other than you're using it as the punchline for something that is comedic. Yeah, it's fun. The, the thing with the show is that because we do so much of the preparation, and I wouldn't want to have it any other way, oh, no. to be honest. I don't think I would feel authentic to, like, turn up and be like, oh, what's this? Oh, that's funny. Well, he, well what's this joke? Oh, where's the auto cue? Um, 
the fact that we kind of just literally ride it together on a Monday makes it feel like so fun. And we just feel like little school kids like laughing, like, can't believe we get to just put this on TV. It's so <laughs> stupid. I did do like a segment called the House of Brace Wellness, where we just watch some Channel 7 infomercial and find the <laughs> dumbest parts of it. Um, but... The, that means it kind of occupies your brain 24 mm-hmm. seven. So you work, you work a few days a week and you go, Oh, I've got the rest of the week off, but you don't really. I was like, right now I'm watching the BBC. It's playing in your studio. Just going, Oh, that looks kind of like something awkward's happening here. I better take a note <laughs> of someone. It looked like they got confused about something. So that might be for SIG too. We'll see. <laughs> and you meant, uh, I mentioned, sorry, that you were just in Montreal at Just for Last. Now, for people who mm. don't know, that's like a huge international comedy festival. Yeah, yeah, I, had you been before? I assume you'd been. Oh, is that your first no, time? No, no. Oh, first time, tell me, yes. Well, tell me everything. Tell me your experience of it all. Like, what was it like? You know, just start yeah. where you want to start and tell me everything. It's so surreal. It's like a school camp, mm-hmm. I feel. Like, you're, you're all staying in the same hotel and then if you want to go back to your room to go to sleep, you have to literally walk through a party. So it's just like every night you're walking past and then there's, uh, you know, people making just going, oh, I work for CBS or I do this or like you're just kind of trapped in these little conversations that you just don't really know what to do with. Um, and yeah, it was just, and so fast. It was over in a week. So you, you're kind of in a whirlwind and you're doing a show every night and you're like, okay, these are the ones I want to see. You don't really get the chance to see anything because you're just performing every night. And, um, and were you just doing spots or were you doing like your full show as well? Like what? I did my full show on the mm. Saturday night and then the rest of the week I was doing spots and, you know, you're, you're doing, running your gala set and there's someone going, okay, that was all right, but it was 30 seconds over. So you go, okay, all right, what am I going to do to make it perfect? Um, but that I've never, I've done one gig in New York, mostly just gig New Zealand, Australia. And so it's the first time I've done like a, an hour show outside of our little bubble. So that was kind of very terrifying, but reassuring to know that you're funny in another country. That being said, though, it was one of those things I was like, oh, how do all these Canadians know me? And then afterwards, they you know, all from New Zealand. they're like, g'day, yeah. how are you there? You're like, oh, <laughs> God damn it. What a waste. Why am I even here? You guys should have come to me. <laughs> no, but that's – your hope is that they're bringing some Canadians, right? Like, Yes, yeah. there were. There were, right. there were a few and that was – yeah, that was nice. Like, I mean, it'd, nice be a pretty, it'd be a pretty lonely room if the Australians and Kiwis didn't support you when you were on the road, yeah, at I least know. at the start, right? You need, yeah. Well, thank you. But okay, so yeah. and so you did a big gala show, like uh, one of those, and and anyone you know, super famous and exciting on your lineup. Jack Whitehall was hosting it. He was lovely. He was Brilliant. just really like just you know crushed it and was super professional and got the crowd so hyped that everyone did well. It's like what more could you ask for? It was awesome. Ah, uh, nice. And did yeah. you find that anything that you like? Were you like? Was there anything that didn't? hit in a way that you were like, oh, this, because sometimes you can get all the words right, but the cultural context is different, right? So it's like people can have, I was watching someone the other night, an American, and they they were right in that we had the thing they were talking about in Australia, but we Mm. don't have the same 
cultural relationship to the thing. Yes, so the, the joke same did, attitude yes, to correct. it. Yeah. Was there anything like that or did it all pretty much, did you feel like, oh, no, they've got a good sense of what it is that I'm talking they've got, about? They had a good sense and that was, that was reassuring. Mm. There were some bits that I was like, this is popping harder here yeah. than... It did in Australia, and that's odd to me. But then some bits, you know, you're like, okay, I'm really working hard to sell this bit that's been my opener for the last three years or whatever. <laughs> I was like, oh, I'm so lazy for doing it. And I'm like, actually, maybe I should have cut that. That was, <laughs> that was the weakest part of the set. What am I doing? <laughs> um, I'm interested in cultural context of where you fit in. Like, so as a, you know, a Kiwi in Australia, like – who told you? <laughs> <laughs> like, is it like? I mean, what's the sense of? I, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I ask with genuine, like, you know, curiosity, which is, I assume, at, at, like, there's a point where you've moved to Australia because there's been obviously more work opportunities in Australia, bigger work opportunities in Australia. Um, you then go overseas via Australia, but are you going as like a Kiwi or an Aussie or like it? Does it as in? And then when you get there, mm. would it be different? I guess this is what I'm really asking you is, yeah. like if I go to America as an Australian, great. Yeah. People love, they mm-hmm. still love Australians. Works very mm-hmm. well. I go to New mm-hmm. Zealand as an Australian, first 10 minutes right. they are going to cross their arms just to make the point and then if you can get them after that they'll be fine but they'll you know so it's so where so do you culturally weird. like I mean I'm interested in where you tell me about your and experience. And we are like lucky because we're so low status that we're mm-hmm. not threatening to anyone and I think that's just what it is is that like we, we're threatened by Australia we feel like they're our older older sibling that's doing better and all this sort of stuff and we've got the sporting rivalry and there's so much going. So as soon as you come over, they go, oh, you're coming over here now? Is that right? Okay. <laughs> but we just have sort of been indoctrinated with this attitude to Australians that I didn't realise wasn't reciprocated. So when I came here, I was fully expecting people to be like, you stupid, filthy Kiwis. And it's just, everyone's been so nice and I feel so guilty that the whole, like, I'm not going to lie. Back in New Zealand, they've been talking a lot of shit about you guys. So it's 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 really weird to come here and to be welcomed with open arms. And I'm so sorry. No, it's but that's so – I think that's – I mean, that's very natural, isn't it? It's, it's like the Sydney-Melbourne rivalry. Melbourne mm. have a lot more invested in it and Sydney aren't quite exactly. as aware that it exists. It's the so. kind of putting your hand out while they're like, well, we're punching. It's like, we, you know, we're, we're so defenceless. What is, uh, I mean, there is a difference in the humour though. Like, and as someone who's worked in both like New Zealand and Australia, like I, can you speak to, like, is, like, I mean, there's a culturally different tone in the humour still though, isn't there? Yeah, and even state by state, mm. I feel. So I, I feel like I've, jokes have gone differently in Melbourne to Sydney to, you know, Perth. Um, and, yeah, I think New Zealand, we are pretty crass, actually, which might surprise you. But, like, the dirty jokes go go big, go gangbusters <laughs> in New Zealand. And I, I don't know why. You would think that we're just sort of more repre- repressed and we'd be more, like, I don't know, like nervous about that kind of stuff, but it's like filth goes hard. And Seven Days, if you've seen the sort of early versions of that show, it was basically 
99% cum talk. And it's just like, that was just on primetime television all the time. And it, I don't know, it's just like part of our culture. I remember like... And um, you're probably right. Like it is that long ago, right? Like a decade ago mm. when I used to go over and do seven days or like probably even longer, right? And it mm. was. You'd go into yeah. the – you'd be like, this is filthy. Was, <laughs> I know. It's so filthy. And I guess I just didn't even realise that. And then I was sort of – I've had to tone – not that I'm a filthy comic, but, you know, you just – your filter is just a little bit uh-huh. adjusted a certain way. And you come here and you've you've got to kind of even things that we allow on TV, it's kind of surreal, like at seven thirty. Like you can just you can almost you can play at F bomb sort of after sort of seven forty five and it's fine. It's pretty wild. <laughs> um I I am very interested in like uh ambition. Like I did going overseas like, are you an ambitious person in regard to like, oh, yeah, I'd love to, like, you know, have an, a Canadian career, an American career, a, yeah, UK career. Like, is that the kind of on the Melanie Bracewell, you know, vision board for like what you would like to do with your comedy? Yeah, my vision board is pretty vague mm. in the sense that a lot of my ambition and motivation comes from like trying not to be stagnant, I guess trying to make sure that every year I look back and I go, oh, like I did this thing that was a that was a step up. I'm not just doing the same thing every year. I, there's there's something I've done that's that's kind of broken through and and met a goal. And that could be writing or it could be, you know, doing Taskmaster or it could be doing like a bunch of things. Um and so that's helped. Because this year I basically had nothing lined up apart from just doing the cheap seats. So that's why I decided I'm like, I'm just gonna front it, spend a lot of money to film a special because then I have a product of that year that is uh-huh. meeting a goal. And what else am I spending money on? I can't even, I can't afford a house. What is the point? I might as well <laughs> invest it back in my own career. Right, like, to the point that maybe one yeah. day you'll be able to afford a house. If maybe, it, if you, if you roll the dice on this, yeah, it'll work exactly. out. I'm interested, you mm. said Taskmaster. You meant, I, I mm. mean. The New Zealand yes, one, yes. Which is yeah. the best, like. <laughs> like, I mean, the British one is absolutely wonderful. But the, the thing about the British one is it's had a very long time to get to be that. Yeah. Like, it didn't start – I mean, it started delightful, but it is now what we all know as kind of that format. But it's mm. almost made for New Zealand comedians because it's very much about that joy of just seeing somebody do little tasks and, you know – like either yeah. doing them spectacularly well or spectacularly badly. And as long as it's one of those two things, it's probably going to be super entertaining. But there is something about, I think, the, all three seasons of the New Zealand version that I just think are – like I think the tasks in the New Zealand version and the way that they are done like have just uh, delighted me in a way that none of the other versions in some – like I, I, anyway, that, yeah. that's just my outside I impression. I think the tasks but. are – particularly good and like I mean this will be out there'll be a few episodes out by the time this comes out but um, just the way that the tasks are written are so perfectly vague and the cast the casting is always so good that they they know there's going to be someone who does it exactly how it's written and they know there's going to be someone who's going to try and find a workaround they know there's going to be someone who's so stupid they don't even read the task which was me Um, but that's part of it that's yeah I know I always was so keen to do it I was so excited (laughs) that I would read it I go I got it I'm doing it and then I've already messed it up 
and it's too, like it's too late and it's yeah and so they do such a good job on writing the task so well and then um, so a lot of that heavy lifting is done behind the scenes and then we get to sort of take all the glory of the extremely hard work that those people put I've in. I've never seen a show that is so well designed like mm. it is like I've everybody does well like it's one yeah. of those things that you can get people to do because regardless of whether you come first or last, that show will make sure that you look good, bad. Totally. Like it, they edit out all of your bad jokes. It's perfect. And it's, <laughs> it always makes you a hero. Like, you know, yes. even when you're the loser, you're still the hero for being the losers because, like, the yeah. capacity to be able to do any of the things isn't really necessary mm-hmm. in life. Like, they've nailed that thing of the stakes being low enough that if you're no good at it or you fuck it up, it yeah. doesn't really matter. Like, it's totally. so well. And it's so odd. Mm-hmm. I think people don't realize when they watch the show is that sometimes it's like you've got an hour yeah. to do this, to basically make a horror movie. <laughs> and you go, okay, you've got an hour. <laughs> But you don't really have an hour. You have yeah. about 30 seconds to think of an idea. Yeah. And then you have the like the <laughs> other 59 minutes and 30 seconds to execute the idea. So a lot of the time people go like, oh, these, you had an hour. It's like, no, we had to commit to our first thought. Because if you spend 10 right. minutes thinking, then you've just wasted so much time. And so um, a lot of it, you get a real insight into people's minds because it's essentially a word association game of like the first thing you think of is the thing you basically have to do in every case. Um, Did you have any like fear about doing like how did no that no I'm not even going to ask that question I'm going I well the answer is yes, yes I was terrified so, how did yeah. you think you would go I guess it was is more actually the answer like I think when we watch reality shows of any kind there is a part of us that is always like oh I wonder how I'd go on Survivor like you know mm. I don't actually want to do it but I do am curious about like I think that daily. <laughs> so did you have I, a sense yeah. of like how you thought you might go on this show? Like was there a like I'll be good at this or I won't be good at this or I'll be like this, I'll be – like did you, yeah. did you have a sense of that going in and how accurate was that sense without giving it anything away? Yeah, I think the things that I was confident about were practical tasks. So if it's like – if it involves throwing something or catching something or balancing something, I knew I'm like, well, I kind of – I feel like I, I'm coordinated enough that I will be okay at those. Uh-huh. The creative ones were the most stressful, where you just ha- you're given such a vague thing, like this will be and this will be out by the time this comes out. But it was like do the most amazing thing with the sellotape, and you're just like, what? Like what? Do, what do you want from? Like give, tell me, tell me exactly what you want me to do because it's, it's so stressful. And yeah, again, you just have to do something immediately. Yeah. And then once you've started, you that's can't it. really stop. You're, that's so you what you're doing go, now. <laughs> this is a low point for me. <laughs> do you feel like though you learned something out of the experience that, you know, from, from like, is it a learn? I guess, is it a, I mean, this is, you know, it's the horrible cliche of these sort of things, but is it some sort of learning experience? I think the coolest thing about Taskmaster is you kind of become your most authentic mm-hmm. self there and, and you drop any kind of persona. You sort of start right. out that way. Yeah. You're like, I'm going to be, oh, I'm going to be so quirky and fun yeah. and cool. And then you are, I don't know, covered in paint in the middle of a forest going like, this is a, this is a real career low. Like you have to, you have to be able to go with the flow 
And sometimes as a stand-up, you, you want everything to be so perfectly crafted and you don't want to release something unless it's fully done and like unless it's amazing and, and you know, trimmed and got a bow on top. But you just have to surrender to and it was amazing having Ray O'Leary on, who who does have a bit of of a persona on stage. And then seeing him drop it for a bit was just oh, it's just mwah. <laughs> Uh, okay, so I'm I'm interested. We've mentioned you know, your competitive like nature on the sporting field. Did you feel like that came through? Like were like were were you you were you, were you competitive at being good at the things? Do you think um, was it something yeah. that you were aware of going into it that you might be like? Yes, it was a it was something I had to actively yeah. repress. I did. Um, Guy Montgomery's Guy Mont Spelling Bee, and I um, I did a live version of that, and I I felt the most toxic parts of my personality come out because there is a sort of like an objective, and it does sort of determine your smarts in a way. And I wanted to, I was I feel so like I don't know protective over that, and so you know when you're sitting there and someone's spelling something wrong and you can't help but going wrong, and you're like oh I'm so sorry, uh, like it's just like it's just it, it brings out the worst parts of me. So I had to, even though it was funny, I still had to be like okay I need to like chill out of it and also have fun and um, not try argue too much because sometimes that comes across not as as fun like just go <laughs> just go with it just like just let it happen and nothing matters really okay so it, that's an interesting this is an interesting time to for me to ask you the question which is the central premise of this uh podcast yeah. which is if you have a life philosophy of any kind like do do you yes. do you have one like it can apply to anything and also a perfectly acceptable answer is that you don't but the first thing i thought of was like everything is temporary, which is like, can sound really bleak, um, but that's like for everything in life. And I know it sounds really like, I don't know, nihilistic or like it, nothing matters. But it's not the tr- not the case. It's more just like to keep myself balanced in the sense that like something that really matters right now, that's super important. Yeah, you want to devote time to it, but uh, there will come a time in like five years where you don't even remember that. I, I thought that when I was dating as well, I would like write down like little notes of like, how a guy made me feel or whatever. And then I'd be like, look at it later. I'd be like, who was Brian? I don't even, <laughs> I don't even remember who that is. Like, it's like, it's like nothing, everything that feels like the worst thing in the world is, uh-huh. is temporary. And everything that feels like the best thing in the world is also temporary. So live it up, like enjoy it now because in five years it might not have that same buzz or that same edge to it. And so, yeah, that's kind of, been my attitude or philosophy i guess i yeah. i like that it, no i it, that sounds very fun I would, it, it's funny you just were talking about writing it down about uh dating and you know observations that you had i was watching you do um it must have been the new zealand co- comedy gala i reckon the um you were hosting that right was that this year last yes. year last like some yeah, sometime in the last mm-hmm. it was recently and you were mm-hmm. doing a joke about putting together a a wi-fi a hotspot wi-fi Wi-Fi network from people that you'd had sex with, and like like you had enough passwords for people's Wi-Fi that you could put together yeah. a hotspot. Like anyway, that was the bit. It's very funny, very yeah, very yeah. funny. Yeah, yeah. But you mentioned in the 
upset that your parents were in the room. Were your parents in the room? <laughs> They were yeah. genuinely, yeah, they were there, um, and they're they're, they're proud of yeah. me. I think. Nah, they're, they're, nah, my dad's super comedy nerd, <laughs> yeah, so okay. I think that's that actually made him super fearful. Mm. I think when I said I was going to do comedy, uh, he is so funny. My dad is like one of the funniest people I know. Like no one makes me laugh like my dad does, but he is not public speaker. He's very shy. He um, is very funny in conversation and can like hold a chat with someone for like a long time. He's he's great at that. But if you asked him to like do a speech, like at my sister's wedding, he would. He's like so clammy yeah, and so okay. nervous about that sort of thing. And my mom is sort of like carefree and like has that like bubbly, like no fear sort of energy and she's like super super charismatic and so I'm like so glad that I've managed to kind of steal those aspects of their personalities. Yeah, it's a good combo. <laughs> Genetically. Yeah, you've done very well. Yeah. Nice combination yeah, yeah. of the two. Very I had to I think I had to fight back against the shyness though. Like I, yeah. I was very shy as a kid. So I So how um, did you fight back against it? You've mentioned it a couple of times, even the fact that people might not have thought that about you. So how did you fight back against it? I'm still, it's such an odd thing because I am still am a little mm-hmm. bit like that. Like at the gym, I've got this guy who's like, oh, congratulations on the Logie. And um, it's it's funny because you're really quiet. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I just, I, I just feel like it's, it's, it uses a lot of energy for me to like not be like quiet and to myself and, um, you know, just sitting in a corner thinking. Um, and so I just, I'm strategic with it now, I guess. I kind of bottle it up and I think, and then when I perform, I can do it and it's fine. And I, I know I have the safety net of, now I've worked on being funny, so that helps. And I'm in an environment where it's acceptable that I have a microphone and I'm talking. And that's, um, yeah, it feels it feels normal and fine. But I don't know. I just feel like sometimes in group settings I'm a little, or if I'm like, I don't know, if I'm not friends with someone, I find that really hard. Like my orthodontist, I went back to him for a checkup and he showed me a photo of me like when I was a kid and I had my braces and he's like, if you told me that that girl became a comedian, I would like not believe you at all. Like that's so we, you were the quiet, one of my quietest patients we've ever had, which, you know, I don't know, but I don't know if that's surprising to people, but um, oh, I don't yeah, know no, it's like. surprising know. for a child to be yeah. not particularly chatty at the orthodontist yeah. <laughs> also, to I be know, honest. Like I, was just, yeah. <laughs> I have five siblings. I've got like five older uh-huh. siblings. So it's just like, sometimes, I don't know. It's easy. If you grow up with a big family, I think you either, become super super charismatic to take up the room or you just like are comfortable enough to just chill you don't and, need to like it's already been observe. yeah yeah the job's already yeah. been filled you like exactly yeah okay so that's sure. interesting to me though that you throw like i mean as a joiner so i think like i mean people know that i'm uh you know like socially anxious person and like you know definitely shy person and i do find it hard so the idea of coming to a new country and then joining like a local sporting club to me would be that's where I would be terrified not moving to the new country necessarily but the idea that I would go and join this thing and I wouldn't know how anything worked and I wouldn't like know anyone and what their things were and I was too old and like so is that part of the strategy or is that an example that you like you've that of how much you've overcome um maybe a little bit of both but I think in the sense of like how much I love netball and I love sport, it's like a it's like a safe space for me. So even the social element of it, like, is that is that is exciting. And I do love to socialize. I'm not like a hermit, um, but I just 
I would say I've got a tight knit friend group and I'm not someone who has like a million friends. And I always like, I'll fight, like I've got a few people on my netball team that I'm like, oh, you're like, you're awesome. And I'd love to be friends with you. And I can chat. There's a few people that I can chat to really easily. Um, And yeah, I guess I'm just kind of selective with a friend group and I like it that way. I like having like a a bunch of like really close friends rather than, um, I don't know, scattering, scattering very widely. Um, Because I already do that, you know, with comedy, you're kind of just like making these little micro relationships that don't really mean anything. I'd like my friend groups to be like a little bit more, I don't know, tight net. Yeah. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Like, is there some, is there a reason that the netball is the one that is most compelling and is stuck? Like, as a sport, like, you know, you said, you know, is there, I don't know, is there something about the game of netball that separates it from basketball or separates it from like something? I'm a big proponent of women's sports yeah. and I just love a sport where women are the main character for once. Uh-huh. Like, it's like, a, it's like our thing. Like, it's, it's, it's pretty awesome. But also, it's just so much easier, like, because it's so popular here, it's, it's so easy to join a team. I sort of basketball, I kind of had to go through a few avenues to sort of play socially in a mixed team. And there's a lot, you know, there's a lot going on. Netball, yeah. you just like, I literally Googled netball club near me and then Facebook <laughs> messaged someone and I was on a team. So it was really just the path of least resistance, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, but I, I yeah. do, under, but I think that observation about it being a, like, I mean, as we speak, we are, mm. you know, in a week where the Australian, you know, women's netball team yeah. have won the world championship again. And the, um, you know, Matildas are playing tomorrow when we speak, like, you know, in the quarterfinals of the World Cup. But you're right. The, you know, the, you know, at the moment, you know, women are absolutely forward when it comes to our thoughts about, and I think in Australia probably have possibility to be our first thought team when we think of like football because they're more successful. We like our teams to be successful yeah. and despite the fact that the Socceroos have been quite successful. Like, you know, mm. the women have a chance of being much more successful. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we could, we could definitely get behind that. But you're right. It's not like we're like, where's the Australian men's netball team? There may well be one, but I know that's that's one of my pet peeves, and I might get cancelled for this. But when people say like use that as an excuse to be like, um, well, like the Matildas, of course they shouldn't get paid as much because what about the men's netball team? It's like it's Uh. always the scapegoat. It's always (laughs) the like, yeah, but there's this one example where women are doing better than men, and we need to fix that. I'm like, yes, but like, what about the Australian men's netballers? Can you not think about? other like <laughs> sports where women are paid less you can't use your one example as hey 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 like stop right there like yeah i was interested I to learn this morning that the matildas get paid the same as the socceroos to play for australia oh, which is I didn't know that. I, neither did i until i yeah. read it literally this morning um the prize money for the two world cups is still Cup. completely out right. of like I mean that's ridiculous but the actual Matildas and the Socceroos apparently the get paid Diamonds the same didn't get any is, prize money for winning the World Cup I mean, Diamonds got zero dollars for winning the World Cup yeah. isn't that so wild it's yeah absolutely wild as bananas it makes absolutely no sense and they probably don't even get that's why I didn't that's why I didn't yeah. didn't try no, out that was why yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> if they dangled a big fat wallet in front of me maybe I would have been the goalkeeper uh, <laughs> uh, okay, so um, so you're back in Australia now. Um, you mm-hmm. know the cheap seats, yeah, absolutely flying. But what happens next? Like, what do you like? You know, how do you work out? Like, and I don't mean that in the 
you know, the sense of that there needs to be a plan for what happens next. But I'll give you an example. I was talking to Ursula on the podcast and she was talking about the fact that basically every year when she goes into like do her new stand-up show, she's already pretty much worked out what the year after's show is going to be. That's where she likes to be to go into one. She needs to have thought about what the next one is, right? Whereas like, you know, somebody else might be like, I've got to finish one thing before I can even start thinking about what my next thing is. I need one to be done so that I can have the headspace to go, you know, what it is that I need to do. So I'm just interested in yeah, how, that's interesting. what you I do, mean, how Ursh you do. is probably the, one of the most prolific yes. comedians. Like she's always touring like three shows at the same time. Like she's just, she never takes a year off. She ne- Like she's just always working and I wish I could be like that. I am every idea that I have like floating around in my head is for my next show because I just I want it to be super dense. Like I think that's my brain. So I'm like, I wouldn't think forward to 2025 because I'd want to like just put it in the show now. I don't have enough content for 2024. <laughs> so like I need to I need to make sure that there's no like lulls and that's this current show. Um yeah. I think I think that's sort of my plan for next year. I'm doing a, doing a new show next year. I'll tour around Australia and then um, potentially, I don't know if I'll do this, if it's locked in or anything, but I'm hoping to do Edinburgh next yes. year. That would be really fun. That would be like another. Have you, so you have never been to Edinburgh to do the festival? Never. I've never even visited. I Yeah. So that's it. I was planning to do it in the, the great year of 2020. Oh, yeah. But, what um, well, Yeah, I don't know. Just, just. <laughs> Just got a bit bored, just thought, no, nah, not for me. Uh, yeah, so it was just one of those, you know, COVID cancellations and then, um, yeah, and then Cheap Seats came along and so it's kind of been on the back burner for a bit, but I just essentially want to do it before I turn 30 and I'll be 29 next year, so that's why I'm hoping to do it. Yeah, I feel like that's a good age to do it. Like, mm. not so young that it's going to absolutely destroy you. You've got some, you know, you can probably afford to stay in a nicer place. You don't have to, yes, you know, nice. all those I mean, that being said, like a nicer place would probably, you know, be close to just buying a house over there these days. <laughs> like, it's crazy at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it is. Yeah. That is correct. Yeah. But I also think that comedically it's a good age. Like, you know, you're far enough in that you can go over and actually do something good right like you know something you're proud so. of and yeah, that's what I'm worried about releasing this special I'm like I'm gonna burn all my material and then I'm gonna have to do new material in Edinburgh it'll, it'll be fine it'll be real slick by then that's my plan well it's, it's, it's so yes slick. so how many times do you want to do it so I was talking to Sarah Millican uh, uh, many years ago on this show and she was talking about the idea that she would do like 40 you know trial shows she would do the show mm. so many times before she you know, ever really took it to like proper audiences. Do you have a a preference, a process? I yeah, I love doing trial shows. I definitely do at least like five trial shows, and then which is a sad, a sad. Sorry to Adelaide, but Adelaide Fringe is sort of just people doing oh, no, they like know a that. trial They're show for a week. They with know, that. right? Yeah. They know that we're it's working stuff out. Isn't that? It's special. It's an authentic experience, yes. isn't it? So that's special. what you get. You get to see jokes yeah. that will never be told again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I kind of try and do a run of ten, and then you've got your sort yeah. of four preview nights at Melbourne, which um, you know people pay less for, so you feel less guilty if it's not <laughs> fully just like the tightest thing ever. Um, and then yeah, and then you kind of 
work it out through Melbourne and it gets better and it always starts off good. I always try and make sure that the first night of my Melbourne run is a show I'm proud of. I would never be like, oh, oh hopefully I figure this out halfway <laughs> through. Like I, I wouldn't put commit myself to yeah. doing a festival if I didn't think that I had enough content or ideas to fill it out. Um, but yeah, it's it, by the end of the festival, you're like, oh, okay, it all worked out and <laughs> it was so much better. And I just somehow got funnier. Can you believe it? That's so crazy. What are the chances? Mel, can I ask you about Melbourne? Because yeah. like, you know, so when did you move over? I moved over in 2021. I, essentially because um, Rob and Tom and Santo from Working Dog just called me up and went, we've got this idea for a TV show. There's a travel bubble at the moment with COVID. You can travel between New Zealand and Australia come over, do a pilot. I came over to film the pilot and then Jacinda closed the border. And so I was <laughs> I was like, a little bit weird timing considering I was doing impressions of her on TikTok at the time. Uh, and then, yeah, and then I was here, I was in Melbourne and, and living in an apartment. Um, my boyfriend was suffering from short-term memory loss, which is what my special um, is about. And um, it was a really wild time. And then everything just got better from there. So, yeah. But that's, I mean, it is such a wild time to be in a new place. Like, because mm. you can't really do any of the things that you would it normally was... do when you would move to a new place. And even the idea of doing a pilot and getting a TV show up and all those sort of things must have been happening in such an unusual way. Yeah, and it was odd to be in a new city and for it to be illegal to make friends. Yeah. <laughs> um, and <laughs> I, I, and obviously that was all the right thing to do, yes. but at the time it just... was very isolating. <laughs> and we, yeah, we just kind of took it day by day and then it was kind of, you know, and then once it was done, it was, you know, we just had moved on with our lives and we had, we had things to get settled in um, in Melbourne anyway, so... And I was just so lucky that I could work and we could do our show and we were weirdly considered an essential service. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And so um, putting the show on, that that was awesome that people, people were watching TV at the time as well, so that probably helped us. Um, and, yeah, yeah, everything was okay in the end. Yeah, okay. And so did Melbourne feel like a – like a, the, I mean, obviously that's where you went for work, right? That's where the work was. Mm. So you go to Melbourne, yeah. but was like, does Melbourne feel like home now? Like, is it, you know, do you feel like part of the city? Does it feel part of you? Yeah, we got a little rescue dog now. So it's like, it's, it's like that helps. You know, you go away, you come home and there's like this little fluffy white thing trying to like, just so excited to see you. And that definitely helps it feel like home. And uh, I really love Melbourne. I know I've I've been ripped apart on our show for um, saying it's just Melbourne, um, <laughs> but I I genuinely love Melbourne. I think it's such a cool city. I love how there's just always something happening. It's like you can go out for dinner at like nine thirty, and that's not wild. Like you can go watch a show and then go have dinner or have drinks, and there's like a buzz. That not so much in Auckland these days. <laughs> that buzz is either. Um, dead, like uh -huh. there's, you know, nothing or 
uh, it's a Friday, Saturday night, and there are people vomiting in the gutters, <laughs> and you know, like that's 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 yep. the buzz. So um, now I'm going to get ripped apart from people in Auckland going, "You yeah, went you swagged used to, off Auckland." You used to love this place. What's happened to yeah, you, God, now, Australia? I've become an Australian. I know. I know. <laughs> it's, I do. I do love Auckland, but I think Aucklanders would agree that once you go, you leave. And you go somewhere like a little bit bigger, then then Auckland feels small. It's like I guess the case with anything. If you move from a small town and you move a small town to Auckland, you'd feel like, oh, I could never go back down to Nelson or something. Now now everyone Nelson's gonna be like, Why are you <laughs> keep, talking keep shit about Nelson? This. I'm just really trying to yeah. dig as many holes as I can. Yeah. Harris Street in yeah. Nelson. Oh, now the people yeah. on Harris Street. <laughs> <laughs> um, exactly. Speaking of dogs, I'm just going to let mine out and I'll be back in a second. Yeah, no worries. Uh, Melody Bracewell, I ask people this all the time on the podcast, so please don't feel like, you know, our conversation led here. Uh, but what do you think happens when you die? That's a really good question. And my... My heart wants to hope that there's something else, but I think in my, I genuinely just believe nothing. Mm -hmm. And I know that that's, that's so bleak as well. I just don't, I don't know. I guess maybe to, to give it a positive spin, I think having the attitude that nothing happens hopefully means that you just like live a good life for the sake of living a good life. You're not trying to win over anyone or you're not trying to like game a system or you're not trying um, to live a good, you're just trying to make it count now, I guess. I just, I've always just kind of been super into science and there's, I haven't seen any evidence of anything happening, so I might as well just assume nothing and, you know, just, just vibe. Uh, and I could have you... actually died when I played netball and um, whacked my head and this is all just, um, a hallucination. I mean, imagine uh, if this would be so sad if, like, <laughs> some sort of form of limbo was me. Like, I, I do a, like, you have a chat with me. I run you through what you thought about yeah. life and how you felt about it all. And then we make a judgment of where you get to go after this. Oh, no. She almost made it. I shouldn't talk about being a bitch on the netball court. I know. You're in hell because hell is yeah. like having to do a podcast for eternity. <laughs> <laughs> so, I. <laughs> um, was there any religion in your family or any other? Like, I mean, was were you raised, you know, believing anything other than the scientific look at it? Yeah, my my mum's side of the family very religious. My um, my granddad and my grandma very religious, but um, my mum still religious, but not. We didn't go to church really. Oh, yeah. I just kind of went to youth groups with my cousins because mm -hmm. they kind of had more religious parents. Um, and then my dad is very much like, we'll try to argue people out of religion. Uh -huh. uh, and he's, you know, he'll try and talk people about evolution. And, you know, it's just, yeah. Fun he, gets, um, he gets silly. I'm like, there's no point. I also just think like, I, I have no um, problem with other people, you know, having religion in their life. And if it gives them some, some form of value and, and that's their belief, then that's, Amazing, and um, I sometimes I wish I did think that, yeah. but I just 
um, I just don't. Oh, yeah, I can see the appeal, the upside of it. Yeah, yeah there's a lot of comfort totally. in it, I imagine, or at least can mm. be. Um, so when you say science, though, do, were you literally <laughs> interested in science? Were you like, I mean, are you talking in a, like the general shorthand for I don't believe in religion, I believe in science? or are gen- Yeah, I feel like they're not they're – not, they're not mutually exclusive. There are some people who are religious and they also know a lot about science. Mm. So I don't want to like, <laughs> oh my God, Melanie thinks that they can, <laughs> Christians are science deniers. No, that's the headline. Uh, I hope Daily Mail There's no headlines out of this, I know, Mel. I know. It's fine. Um, I just mean, um, I just kind of have a, I feel like I think of things in a very logical mm. way. So if there's no like, if there's no rules or no proof or no like evidence that I've seen, I know some people have like very spiritual experiences and that's their proof to them. And I just haven't had that in my life. So I've never had a moment that where I've gone, wow, there's something else out there. I just, um, I just essentially don't know. And I think maybe that's why, like maybe I'm more agnostic in the sense that I don't know, and I kind of feel comfortable not knowing. But you've and never I, had I like a feel, you've never had a, an experience, whether it be through, um, you know, like whether it be through heavy breathing, whether it be through thinking you saw a ghost, whether it be through teen drinking or some weird mushroom you ate in a park, or like <laughs> a, a blow to the head you got on a netball court. Like you, you've never <laughs> felt something el- else. I've- I definitely feel like I definitely like watch a horror movie and I'll like go home and be scared that something <laughs> some monster's gonna pop out or something, even though I know it's not logical. And I think a lot of the times I I I do go along with certain spiritual things, but for the most part, I don't know. I I guess I. I just don't really think about it that much. I'm just vibing. Mm. Um, yeah, but that's okay. That's good. I, yeah. I mean, I'm interested in like how mm. present it is in your thoughts. Like for those who kind of believe, you know, that there is, you know, maybe we were nothing before and we go back to nothing after where it's all done. Like is the mm. simplest way of me shorthanding that for the sake of this. Yeah, is yeah. like I'm interested in then in just like, how you do fill your life because the reason that people like, you know, there has been religions and all, you know, people believe in self-help or Jordan Peterson's 12 rules for life, whatever it might be is they're like, tell me, tell me how to do this. Like, what am I meant Mm. to be doing? How am I meant to be Mm. judging my life? Like, like, am I meant to be good? Am I meant to be bad? How am I meant to decide what those things are? Like, you know, is success a real thing? Am I the, like, you know, how much of what society says versus what I say is how do you make those decisions about how you live your life? Totally. And I think I, I need to, I I have, it's weird that I have the attitude of like nothing happens at the end, but yet I still have um, a little bit of a fear of like how I'm perceived or what people think of me. And I definitely um, think about those things and I, the main thing I think is just like, we just want to be happy, right? Yeah. So any way that you get that in your life, as long as it's not hurting anyone else, then yeah, apply that to your life. And whether that's religion or that's sport or that's, um, you know, medication that, that people people need or, you know, certain things in your life, it's just all about like making it as happy as you can. And, um, and, you know, I've like dealt with bouts of depression and anxiety and all those sorts of things. Um, but 
I don't know. It's never really given me like a spiritual awakening, and I don't. I don't know why. It's 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 just yeah. I just kind of I just go day by day. Yeah, and that's a perfectly acceptable and probably very smart way to look at things. You know, manage what you can manage. I'm not making a judgment either. I'm just you know being Mm. encouraging. But you talk about like the idea of like other people's perceptions. Of you know, and sometimes your mind wanders into what other how other people perceive you. Like, if in a perfect world, what would you be wrapped like ideally? If like if this is what people thought about you when they think about you, this was their first thought. What would like the perfect first thought? What would you love? Like you know, perfect world when people hear your name and think of you, they immediately think what? Yeah, I think it would be. Someone that you want to hang out with. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and I know that sounds like obsessed, like a little, because I know, like, my yeah. first instinct is to say kind, but that felt like a little bit, like a little bit of yeah, a, pretend. the correct yeah, answer. Yeah, that was the right answer, and but what's the real yeah, answer? Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. And I just know, and, and I, of course I want people to mm. think that, and I, of course I want to be kind, but I think that fits into wanting to hang out mm. with someone, right? You're like, oh, they are kind and they're entertaining and they give me time and they, they are, you know, listening, they're a good listener and all those things just stem from the sense that you're just like, I see that person and I think they'd be good. They'd be a great hang. And that's kind of like how I want to be perceived, I guess. Okay. I don't know. No, that's, that I, mean, cool no, I, I like that a lot. Like, I think that's really mm. fun. I'm going to ask you a subsequent question off that, if you don't mind. Cause when I was yeah. in America, I was, uh, um, <clears throat> talking to a guy and I won't name him because it'll be clear why I'm not naming him. But, he was talking, he was going through a period of great success, but the reason that he was having great success was he was fronting this TV show that wasn't really reflective of um, the sort of stuff that he does on stage and in his act. I won't give too many more details because, you know, it'll dob him in. Like he was being very successful, but basically the way he described it was he said, I'm getting these huge audiences, but I wouldn't want to hang out with any of them. Like, you know? Right. Like, do you think yes. you would like to hang out with your audience if if you were doing a show one night and for whatever reason they had to close the doors of the building and you all had to survive in there together for a week? Do you think that you would have a good time together? I genuinely think yes. Mm. And I don't think I'm putting up um, – I know I say that I'm like super shy in day-to-day life, but that's sort of um, – that's more in a situation where I'm a little uncomfortable. Like with my friends – I would say the way I am on TV is how I would be with my friends and people I'm super comfortable with because I, I, I know how to kind of feed off that energy. Um, but if I'm in a situation where I'm like at the airport and I've got to talk to someone or like in the plane and I'm like, oh, so what do you think uh-huh. of the tray tables? Or you know, like, I, I mean, that is like, a good example of how bad yeah, you are at that. Yeah, exactly. Good chat. I... Um, I, yeah, I like to think that when I'm hanging out with my friends, I feel funny and I feel like we're on the same page. And I like to think that if people find me funny on on screen or um, do, and in my stand up shows and stuff, that we probably have a same sort of value to life. Like it's not taking things too seriously. It's like self deprecating. It's not, you know, it's it's a bit of fun and just silliness. I think. Um, so I hope, I hope so. And I, the, the chats that I've had with audience members after the show, they've always been so nice and so like normal and cool people. And sometimes you get like some weird guy who's just come because they thought you're going to wear a short skirt or something. (laughs) Um, but for the most part, people come because they enjoy your content and 
you know, I, I think that if I have a similar sense of humor with someone, then I can be friends with them quite often. Uh, how does getting your shit together, um, like, you know, whether it be being in a relationship or whether it be, um, you know, having a regular, you know, entertainment job, TV show, these sort of things, these markers of success or at least external markers of success. Someone might look at your life and say, oh, look, you know, she won a Logie, she's on the television, she's on all these shows, she's like, you know, got this like, you know, life now. Does it change like your capacity for self-deprecation on stage? Is it? Oh, yeah. I saw, I kind of I kind of understand that. A lot of um my I'm whenever I do like self-deprecating stuff, it's like I'm stupid and I misunderstood something and my brain works differently and uh I I looked silly. I'm never like, oh man, life's really tough. I couldn't find a car park for my Porsche. <laughs> like I mean I'd drive a Hyundai I thirty, so that would be a lie, but um I, yeah, I think, I think I, I hope that I'm, I come across in the way that I feel, which is yeah. like, sometimes even if you're doing well, you do feel like you're kind of bumbling through life. So, okay. even, even if things so, are going I well. Guess, yeah. yeah. No, I, I absolutely get what you're saying. I guess I, mm. I might reframe the question just slightly, which is, yeah. do you think it becomes a problem with the audience's perception of you? I don't think it's about your own perception because you you always feel like you're the same yeah, same idiot yeah, no. at the heart of everything. D- does it ever become a problem with the audience's perception where you're like, this is who I am and they've got a different perception of who you are? Like, have you noticed that at all, I guess? Yeah, maybe. It's kind of hard to tell. I, I feel like, um, yeah, I'm, I think people might just assume I'm really rich. Mm. Um, oh, yeah, no, they, which, they will. They definitely would. That's that. Yeah, I guess that's what I'm saying is, if you're on TV, like they don't understand how this actually works. Like they they think now your life is sorted. Like you know, you're a, like yeah. a TV star. You're fine. Like you don't have any of the same problems that anybody has anymore. Yeah, and and I don't want to want it to say seem mm. like oh my gosh, my life is hard as as well as someone who <laughs> is dealing with poverty of or not. anything that's like genuinely um, really really tough. Uh, and I wouldn't say that I'm like um, working paycheck to paycheck and mm. I'm writing everything down, but I'm not. I'm not as baller as I mm. think people no, seem to think I, I am. Bet that's like true. it's, yeah, <laughs> maybe. And so if I talk about like spending money on something and being like, oh, I'm nervous about, like yeah. I had a bit about like spending two hundred dollars on a weighted blanket and mm. regretting that. And I sometimes like over the course of developing the joke, I was like, I think people mm. think that $200 for me is fine. Is yeah. like pocket change. What are you maybe. talking about? But yeah. It doesn't yeah, have the exactly. stakes anymore. Yeah, right. I know. And so, um, there's an element of that, I think. Um, but for the most part, I'm never going to, um, be like super inauthentic and like get up on stage and be like, oh my God, everything's really hard and I suck and don't you agree that I'm stupid and can't do anything right? Um, but I think it's like, <laughs> wait, what have I done? <laughs> no, what have just I done? Was a... You laughed harder than I thought you would and now it's like, <laughs> I'm nervous that I've uh, it was, done something really stupid. It was more, no, it was more yeah. just that I, like in my mind, I immediately thought of like seven shows that I'd seen that were pretty much what you just, oh, right. you know, described, <laughs> you know, at the heart of 
<laughs> I know you weren't specifically referencing yeah. one 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 show when you did that. You were just it was just no. It just I was just sort of um, posturizing with that. I've seen quite a lot of shows that could have been summarized in their thirty word summary down to I what you just said. I never want people to feel. The worst thing on stage yeah. is when you kind of think you've written something that's a bit relatable uh, and you say it and people go, oh, yeah. and you're like, no, I, that's like, that's like the worst part. Like, so that's why I kind of feel like I have to tone it back. Like, yeah, okay. Like, oh no, like, like I'm fine with it. It's fine. You've got to like grapple with the audience again and be like, no, 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 no. I'm all good. I'm all good. This is just, yeah. I'm Okay. So um, one of the, you know, things about stand-up is that you have the capacity to take your own, you know, mistakes or flaws or any of these things and reframe them, you know. You mm. have control. Like you said, you don't mm. want the awe because you're like, oh, no one made me bring this up. It's okay. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I'm, I'm bringing this up because I have something to say about it, you know. Yes. I, I, like, yeah. But I am interested in you invested in your own special. Like, you know, you said that you – like. What did you, when you do that, that's a belief in your own, own work, but it also says to me that you feel like you had something that you really wanted to share with people. Like what was, you, you've kind of, I don't want to, you, know, you talked a little about what the show was about. It was there something about the show, not what it was about, but about the show that you particularly loved? Yeah, I think I liked that, um, I feel like I had structured it in a way that um, really flowed together well, and it's the fa- it's my, essentially it's the fa- like my favorite show I've written. So when I finished it, I kind of went. Usually, you're like, I'm sick of this, and I never want to do this show again. And I was, I felt actually, I know it sounds so cringe to say, like I was so proud of it, but I, I genuinely was, and it was such a, um, it was a, a like a snapshot of a like really weird time in my life. And I just kind of wanted like evidence of that that happened. Like it was, it's such a, it was such a strange time dealing with this, this big problem. And it also kind of flowed into the show of, of memory loss and also like wanting to be someone who's like remembered. And so I was like, well, it doesn't make sense to do the show that's about being remembered. And then just, it's gone forever. And so I kind of wanted to, to film it. And I just, I felt like it was my, I was ready to do a special and I was like, you can't just wait for these things to happen. You just kind of have to sometimes make your own luck and suck it up and put the money in and look, maybe it'll be a flop and um, I'll regret it. But it hasn't released yet. So at the moment it's sort of a Schrodinger special of sorts. Where, that it's where very do we know where, when, where and when? I, I've sort of had chats with, with um, streamers, but I honestly... I honestly want to put it on YouTube. Mm. That's that's where I'm I'm heading towards now. It's what every comedian like, wants to do, and out. what every manager will advise I mean, you against. Basically, it's scary. <laughs> it is scary because if it goes badly, yep. everyone can see that yep. it's had 300 views. <laughs> so, like, if it's on Netflix, it's like they don't even tell you. Even if it's your thing, they won't tell you how many people have watched it. But like YouTube, there's comments, mm. there's likes. There's views. There's all these public things, which is quite. Do scary. you care about those things? Would you like? Are you the sort of person who would care about? Like, will you check comments on things? Are you I beyond that? Are you able to insulate used yourself? To check everything, mm. and then I reached a point in my life where I just couldn't, and I was like, and I, I actually spoke about it with my therapist. I was like, 
And then I like looked it up and people had all this negative mm. stuff to say about me. And she was like, well, then just don't yeah. look. And I was like, but, but I like, she's like, but, but why mm. are you like, why aren't you just stopping that? Why don't you just stop that today? And I was like, but, but like, wouldn't you want to know if someone says something bad about you? And she's like, no. no, not really. I would not want to know. And I, I just kind of, it clicked with, and I put it in my calendar of like, this is the day I stop looking and I stop seeking it out. And sometimes, you know, like you, a comment will come on your mm -hmm. social media and so you kind of have to see it. But I stopped looking at other pages that had posted my content. I stopped looking at things that I had no control over. And, oh, I'm so much happier. It's it's so freeing to go, you just don't have to look. And I told that to um, a friend of mine who was like, I won't expose who it was either, but was like, oh, I kind of mentioned something about someone posting something and then... It, I think like something had ended up on Reddit or something and he immediately started searching for it. And I was like, no, 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 don't. Someone messaged me saying it was on Reddit and I'm, I'm not going on. I can't, I can't look at it. I'm not going to look at anything. I'm just going to live my life because it doesn't really matter what they say. Like nothing that they say will ever be beneficial. Even no. like, even if you have the attitude of like, oh, it's constructive criticism. No, it's not. On the internet, it's not constructive criticism. If someone's posting that and they're not, they're, they're not giving you anything valuable. It's always just going to make you feel really shitty about yourself. And I just, one of the like hardest lessons I had to learn was I just, you have to let people be wrong about you and, it, and be fine with it. Yes. Like live your life, let people be wrong. All you can do is just do your best. You don't have to like, you don't have to reply. You don't have to like try and convince no. that person. They've made up their mind and they may think and believe something completely false about you. But what are you going to do? Reply to every single person, spend your whole life trying to like appease people who hate you. That sounds like a nightmare. I mean, you're never going to do it for a start. And certainly yeah, totally. if you were going to do it, that isn't the way to do it. And it's going to yeah. take all the time away from you doing things for the people who do like what it is that you do. Yeah. But also here's the thing that will really blow your mind. You've got to get comfortable with the fact that in that room full of people you're talking to, there's some people who believe wrong shit yeah. about you and hate you, yeah. let alone out in the world. In the world, like it's – Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm the same as you. Like I remember one day – when I was like looking at like comments on a podcast thing and I was, I remember getting the one that annoyed me and like for days, it just was in my head annoying me. And I was like, you only went there in the first place because you wanted to read all the good things. You don't remember any of the good things. So that was fucking useless. You've just, yeah. <laughs> like, you know, all you're obsessed with is this one thing that your life would be better if you can't do anything about it. It's in there now. If you just didn't have it in there, you would be fine. You could, totally. your life was fine without having this information. Do you still like occasionally if you, you know, you're scrolling through Facebook and your face pops up on something, would you ever click that button of look at the comments or you, you're fully would never do it? I now? am off everything now. So I've been off everything yeah. for like a year or so now. And nice. I had a few things come out. So I had a special come out. I had the tour. I had like some tally stuff. They've all happened now. Like I've been through all of them without being on social media and without like reading reviews or anything like that. I will say early on, it's pretty challenging to work out how you feel about things. 
it's mm. amazing to me how much of how I felt about how the show was going or how blah, blah, blah was going was determined by like external noise. And if you shut it all out, like the good stuff as well, like you really have to reconcile, am I happy? Like am I happy with this? <laughs> like it's not enough that other people are happy. Like am I happy? And I found mm. that challenging. But once I got used to it, I mean I could never go back. I literally would never – ever like start again it would be it's the equivalent of me being like a reformed alcoholic or whatever i'm like i'm never mm. don't want to ever like try it again because i don't want to get sucked back into that bullshit um totally now i don't want to um, bang on at you though and i i realize that we've already been talking for a fair while so there's a few more questions and then i will yep. let you go. go but um i would just wanted to talk about that special because i'm excited about like i love when yeah. people invest in themselves and invest in something that they're passionate about and so wherever it ends up i hope it is a super big success for you and the oh, cheap seats is absolutely will. flying it's a, such a good show it's just so funny it's like it's just you know it's just a really well put together show and like incredibly supportive of like newer and emerging comedic voices as well which is just something that i am so passionate about so like you know i'm so glad to see that it's going so well but it's just funny it's just oh, a funny show right well. Like, so it's nice. funny. It's just a very... I'm shy now. Um, <laughs> uh, can't wait for Taskmaster, by the way. Is there anything else you want to plug before we get to the final few questions? Uh, Not really. That's yeah, good. I, think I mean, that's, that's a good... That's a we've, done, we've done pretty well. I'll, I'll put all the clips yeah. out of Taskmaster. Like, if you can't watch it here legally, I don't you know. Can, it it's on binge. binge. Well, I mean, I imagine... Yeah. Well, the previous seasons are on yeah. Binge or Foxtel if you have that. So um, yeah. the first three seasons are certainly there. I would – I they only landed there this in the last few yeah, months. Yeah, so I'm hoping so that it will come out week by week. You would hope so, binge, right? Yeah. yeah. Who knows? I, I don't know either, but I'm, I'm going <laughs> to bloody find out and I'm going to okay. let people know because uh, the New Zealand Taskmaster is a really, really funny show. Um, uh, I assume they've announced who's on it. So you said yeah. Ray O'Leary is on it. And by the time people hear this anyway, they will have been able to know who's on it. So it's not a secret. Yeah. Who else was in the cast? Ray O'Leary. Karen O'Leary from Wellington Paranormal. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Brilliant. Die Henwood oh. and um, – and Bubba, who is hilarious. Everyone's going to love Bubba. I reckon yeah. she's going to be the standout I star. Bu- I don't know if I know yeah, Bubba. Yeah, so she's – she's. it's a weird one because she's very famous in New mm-hmm. Zealand for an ad um, for Turner's. She's, she's Tina from Turner's and she's everywhere. She's a comedian uh-huh. and d- does a lot of shows. And um, she did these shows in her backyard in lockdown and um, not even in lockdown as well. She did like some big shows in, in South Auckland, bringing comedy to South Auckland and she's – She's phenomenal. Oh, that's brilliant. What a great cast. That's Ka- yeah. So Karen's been on this podcast before. I think she's oh, cool. like so funny. Like so funny. So funny. And Di, of yeah. course, you know, a New Zealand comedy legend now. So uh, yeah. incredible. What a good cast. Stacked. So Stacked. Yes. Uh, fantastic. All right. A couple more questions. What's the best piece of advice or worst piece of advice you've ever got in your life? Um, oh, shivers. Okay, best piece. I know you talked about Sarah Millican, and that's probably why it's at the top of my brain. But especially with stand up, the the Sarah Millican rule of not thinking about it uh, after eleven a.m. the next morning is a great thing to live by in comedy, and even just anything. Like you know, if you do something in the evening and you stop thinking about it the next day, you can kind of look forward rather than constantly looking back, which is you know. 
can be damaging. So for those who don't know that, uh, I mean, it, it, context clues, well, I think most people would yeah. have picked up what you're talking about. But I think yeah. Sarah actually talked about it when she was on the podcast. So people can go mm. back and have a listen to that episode. But um, that idea that it's okay for her to feel bad about or whatever about how something went, but that she has a cutoff of when mm. that's acceptable or not acceptable. Like, you know, and for her, it's yeah. 11 o'clock, I think, the next morning. And yeah, mm. it's a very powerful idea of being able to let something go. Have you ever had – I love bad advice. Is there any piece of advice that was given to you certainly, you know, when you first started doing comedy or in any other aspect that you've later gone, that was terrible advice? Whoever told me that was full of shit. There's nothing that's like completely coming to mind mm. for this one. That's okay. Bad advice. I mean, if if there isn't one, I mean, it'd be – like some people let things go if they don't re- – like that's the other thing, right? Like sometimes people have been given bad advice but you know immediately that it is bad advice. Yeah. <laughs> I, that's a – yeah, that's a really tough one I because, I, again, I don't – I think I value advice from – and it probably goes to my terrible – my terrible listening skills or something that like, <laughs> like la, if la, a good la, la, friend la. of mine tells me something, I usually take yeah. it on board. But if it is just mm. someone screaming me something in the yeah, street, white noise. <laughs> You're just like, didn't my, hear it is it. white noise to me. Um, <laughs> oh, it might come to no, me. And if you right. have another question, I do. And so um, if you could wake up tomorrow brain. and you had like, you don't have to learn how to do this. You don't have to practice to do it. You just wake up and you are just really, really good at something. What would you love to just be really, really good at? Oh, I feel like, I mean, I love video games and I'm decent at them, but if I could be like the best at like Halo or League of Legends, that would be great. That would be quite cool to have add to my arsenal because I enjoy those things. Mm -hmm. And the thing that makes me so frustrated is when I'm bad at them. And so (laughs) I, I think that would be like, that would be, that would be amazing. Uh, if I had a time machine and I could take you to any point in the future or any point in the past, round trip, one trip, you can visit yourself, but you can just go to history or the future. You don't, you know, don't worry about timelines and how things will be affected. It's very hypothetical. So um, would you go forward or backwards in time, do you think? Yeah. So am I... Am I? Would I go back to being a younger version of myself, or would no, I? No, you're be just going to visit. You're vi- you're just, just visiting. Going to visit, yeah. Just to pop yeah. in. And you don't have to visit yourself. You can go back two hundred years, or five hundred years, or a yeah. thousand years if you want. Like, I mean, it doesn't get better for mm, women if you go back. No, that, that, that um, point's been raised a few times on the podcast. Oh yes, oh yes, Not just you, women, it turns uh, out as well either. Yeah. There's a whole bunch of people. Uh, if you ask them well, that question, they've got a real <laughs> time limit on how far they would go back. <laughs> Um, but then the idea of going forward seems like stressful if you go into the future and it's bleak or it's amazing and you don't like have you still don't have any control Uh over it that's quite stressful i don't think i'd want to go in the future i think i still would want to go in the past but maybe not so yeah not too far i honestly feel like the early 2000s -hmm was such a great time pre-social media like <laughs> we survived we survived the, y2k we thought it was the biggest yeah. thing that would ever happen in our lifetimes <laughs> there was like no social media and maybe that's just like the like an illusion that yeah. maybe there were i mean there probably was a lot of terrible things happening but you just have the rose tinted goggles of like everything was better back then i just feel like there was like so many 
huge cultural mm. moments that I would have like loved to have been because I would have been five in 2000. So I feel like if I could experience that as an adult, would love that. I remember my um my parents would always talk about the the fireworks in front of the sky tower on the, when it hit the year 2000, and I was five and I was apparently there, but. They talked about how it was like fireballs. And I just, that's one of those times where I was like, well, I wish I could remember those fireworks. So maybe that would be it. I would go like watch the sky tower as yeah. it hit the year 2000 yeah. and see the see the cool fireworks. I mean, first ones in the world, right? That would have been, that's the whole point, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. First, first people seeing first in the millennia. First place to yeah, hit the, yeah, yeah, exactly. I was like, why, like, surely firework mm. technology has gotten better. Like, why has, like, no fireworks I've ever seen been better than how my parents described mm. the fireworks of 2000? I don't, yeah. Oh, man. It's like I'm, ch- I'm chasing waterfalls <laughs> with that one. Like, <laughs> every fireworks display is, and they're probably exaggerating. Yeah. It might be disappointing. Well, of course they it are. Might be, you go back yeah. and you'd be super disappointed. It's of course, fireworks technology has got better. Are you kidding me? We've got drones. <laughs> Have you ever seen the harbour? It's amazing. It's got heaps better. You would go back and it'd be like watching Lenny Bruce. You'd be like, this was the best. This is real slow and unfunny now. I don't get it. <laughs> Yeah, oh, man, it's one of the things that like my parents talked about a lot yeah. when I was growing up, and I was like, oh, I don't remember that. I mean, that's part and of the problem just, with filming everything, though, right? Like, without wanting to yeah, be an old true. man about ranting, is you can see how things were, whereas sometimes things mm. grow bigger in the imagination, and that's a good thing. It's not we've robbed yeah, ourselves of some of the delight of the the tall story yeah. or something being exaggerated over the years. It's, yeah, it's like um, someone was talking about the Kardashians and how um, they go, when they're at an event, they take a photo, they plan a photo and they get everyone together for the photo so that they can make a memory. Yeah. And it's like, you're not really making a memory, you're manufacturing a memory right. because that didn't happen organically. You planned mm. for this photo. Yeah. So the memory is no, <laughs> My, no our memory is authentic. all of us sitting down for a photo. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Remember the time we posed for that photo. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Melanie Bracewell, this has been a delight. Thank you so much. If you do have concussion, I I feel like you've done an extremely great job getting through this and I appreciate the time that you've you've given. Please please do not die on the way home, by the way, because I would feel so bad about the fact that we – I mean, it would be funny, but let's not. not This is – no, but please do not. Okay, fine, fine. Listener.